0: So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word.
1: We have the presence of God's Spirit in us to lead us into righteousness and to convict us of sin when we're heading down a path of sin. And as believers, we have a new heart given to us by God, a new heart that is beating in alignment with God's heart, which keeps us from sinning in our liberty and our freedom, a heart upon which God, the Scriptures tell us, has written His law on a heart of flesh. So we know. So just because something that that has been associated with sin in some circumstances or can be used for sinful purposes does not mean we will use it for such sinful purposes. Liberty and freedom, and let me say this very clearly, liberty and freedom does not automatically equal licentiousness and sinfulness. It doesn't mean it goes there. And if you think that liberty and freedom does give you a license to do what you want to do, no matter how sinful it might be, well, then I can tell you this, you're missing the heart of God. And that's the greater issue than freedom and liberty. That's the greater issue. You see, in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning of verse 15, verses 15 and 16, Peter writes this, 1 Peter 2, 15 and 16, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, freedom, liberty, right? Yet not using liberty, freedom, as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. You see, when we have the heart of God pumping in us, A pool table isn't going to become sin because we're not going to take it there. We're not going to go there because God has written his law upon our hearts. We understand right from wrong. We have the Holy Spirit convicting us if we start to go down. And we know what the scriptures say about things that are sinful. So why would we want to do them? But we don't don't forbid freedom and liberty because we're afraid that people are going to do wrong things all of the rules and regulations and spiritual practices that men or we can impose on ourselves thinking that by doing them, we're somehow going to ensure we make ourselves spiritual and and more righteous, it won't do this for us. It won't do this for us because true spirituality and righteousness isn't a matter of practice, but it's a matter of the heart, which can't be changed through all of these rules and regulations and and draconian practices that, that we want to impose at times. Now with that said, it also doesn't mean that spiritual practices and disciplines like fasting and, and prayer are unnecessary or they hold no value in our lives spiritually. They can and they do hold value if engaged in with the right heart and for the right reasons. Fasting, it's an important part of our spiritual lives. And it, it can be a real blessing when done for the right reasons and with the right heart. First of all, prayer and fasting lifts the burden from our hearts as it causes us to look to God, the one who is the solution to the things we're burdened with. I think of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, but in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1, it says this, it happened after this that the people of Moab with the people of Ammon and others with them besides the Ammonites came to battle against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and told Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, from Syria, and they are in Hazazan Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and from all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. You see, Jehoshaphat had the heart of fasting. He knew what it was about. He wasn't doing it because of some ritual he needed to engage in to be more spiritual. He did it because he knew that as he fasted, he could get more in touch with the heart of the Lord to find the solution to the problem that they were facing. That's the right heart and the right spirit behind fasting. Secondly, prayer and fasting can teach us that we can say no to our flesh and its demands. In fact, fasting really teaches us this because I don't care how little you, you tend to eat, I guarantee you that the moment you decide to fast, even if you eat like a little bird, the moment you decide to fast, you know what? You're going to have a voracious appetite. Suddenly your flesh is going to say, well, I didn't want it, but now that you're telling me I can't have it, now I want it. And start screaming against it. You know, and, and 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 when you think about this, it's it's the way our flesh is. It doesn't always want it until it's deprived of it. And so fasting can help us learn to tame our flesh. It can teach us that we don't have to give in to it, which will be profitable in so many other areas than just food. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, but I discipline my body. And bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul says, man, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. Some, some translations say beat it into subjection. You know, it's not a fleshly beating. He just means that he's taming his flesh through these different disciplines spiritually. He, he's not doing it to make himself more righteous, but he's doing it because of the righteousness of Christ that's already been imputed to him. And he wants to walk in those things more fully. So prayer and fasting can teach us that we can say no to our flesh and our demands. Third, prayer and fasting opens spiritual doors in ways that we can't fully understand or comprehend, but doors that bring the answers and the solutions that we need, and especially when the things we're facing go beyond our capacities for dealing with them. You know, we looked over the last several weeks, I've made reference to Matthew 17, where Jesus comes back with a few of his disciples from the Mount of Transfiguration. Of course, the rest of his disciples are at the bottom of the mountain, and they couldn't deliver this man's boy from demon possession. And you might recall, but in Matthew 17 and verse 21, Jesus made clear. He said, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. There's a place for it for opening spiritual doors. It's appropriate to use prayer and fasting for that reason. Fourth, prayer and fasting can tune our hearts to God's heart. It enables us to better discern His will and direction for our situations. Think of Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23. Ezra chapter 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek Him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request to the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, the hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated God for this, and he answered our prayers. They needed help. They fasted in order to find the help. And finally, fifthly, prayer and fasting is the one thing we can do by which we can find the Lord in our situation. I think of Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 13 and 14. But Jeremiah said, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. And I believe that fasting is just a way that we can engage very intimately with the Lord to to seek him and to find him for our lives. Now, those are the benefits. And yet, despite all those benefits, fasting... And let me be clear, fasting must always be undertaken for the right reason and with the right heart, and never out of some misguided notion that it makes us somehow more spiritual or more worthy of God. In fact, fasting properly undertaken is really more about God and who He is than it is about us and who we are. The the men who are asking this question of Jesus, they don't have a right heart. They don't have a right motivation for fasting. They're doing it, but they're doing it out of some misguided understanding of righteousness and, and, and obligation. And their fasting is not a true fast in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because it's more about them than it is about Him. It's more about them than it is about Him. In fact, as we ponder these guys and their views, I can't help but think of something that Jeremiah said on behalf of the Lord to the outwardly but not inwardly spiritual people of his day. In Zechariah, I said, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Zechariah. But in Zechariah chapter 7, verses 4 through 7, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 4, "'Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, "'Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, "'When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months "'during those 70 years, did you really fast for me?' "'For me.'" Wow, did you hear those words? "'Did you really fast for me?' "'For me.'" "'When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves?' Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous in the south and the lowlands were inhabited? The Lord's challenging these people. He's saying, oh, you fasted. Who are you fasting for? Are you fasting for me or are you fasting for yourselves? Were you fasting for your own self-righteousness? Were you fasting for your own distorted ideas about spirituality? Why were you fasting? It's a good question for us to ask. It's a good question for us to ask on any spiritual practice we do. You know, I was talking to a pastor there a week. We were talking about the good old days when sanctuaries were filled with people <laughs> and, and nobody had to wear masks mask and nothing was hindering anything we were doing. And he says, you know, over the years, he said, I saw a lot of people who would come and go. And he said, I used to always believe that, you know, the right reason for being here was they were here because of the teaching of the Word. And he said, but, you know, I found over the years that people who had said to me, we're here because of the way you teach the Word. We're here because of the way the Word is taught here. are the very people who left, too. And he said, what I came to realize is their motivation was wrong. Yeah, I want them to study God's Word. I, I believe in what we do, verse by verse, exposition of Scripture, book by book, you know, working our way through the Scriptures. It's important to understand the context. But the real reason we're coming together is Jesus. (laughs) And if you're not here for Jesus, then your motivation is wrong. No matter how good it might be that the good thing is that you're focused on even the teaching of the Word, if what you're not here for is Jesus, then your motivation is still wrong. You see, I go to the Bible, as I said before, not to get more knowledge or because it's a good thing to do. I go to the Bible so I can see more of Jesus so that my relationship grows with Him. And if that's our motivation, whatever the practices are, they're going to be good. They're going to be right on. But the problem is when we remove those pieces and it's about us, it's about something we're gleaning for ourselves, and really isn't about the Lord, well, our motivation's going to be wrong. And so these guys, they use this perfectly valid spiritual practice to promote a very wrong spiritual view and to undermine Jesus in the eyes of those who are listening and following Him. But how does Jesus respond? Well, let's look on. Look at verse 34 of our text. It says, And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Jesus answers their criticism in a very simple and a very clear way, if you understand the cultural context. Jesus answers by drawing a connection to the wedding practices of that day. A, a wedding feast was the most vivid picture of joy and, and happiness in that culture, a time of laying aside burdens and of the normal day and, and, and simply enjoying what was happening at the wedding, enjoying the feast, enjoying being with people who had gathered to honor the wedding party, enjoying that fellowship that came with the wedding. It was a time of release from, from burdensome rules and regulations and even from engaging in fully legitimate spiritual practices that were a part of normal Jewish life. The people participating in the wedding celebration, which, which generally lasted about a week— they were released from keeping the the normal spiritual requirements because it would have impeded and detracted from the wedding feast itself, which was being given greater priority at the moment. Are you tracking with me on this? So the typical things that the Jews would do religiously, in many cases, were suspended during that week so that they could enjoy the feast, so that they could focus on the wedding that was taking place and the bride and the groom. In fact, Bible scholars tell us that there was a popular rabbinic text called the Scroll of Fasting, and it was a custom that said that fasting was forbidden on certain specified days devoted to joyous celebration of Israel's blessings from God, such as the wedding celebration, which is a beautiful picture of his covenant with his people. And so, with that background, Jesus is simply appealing to this kind of thinking as he responds to the Pharisees. And he's also making the point that by not keeping all of these observances during this week-long celebration, it didn't make anybody any less spiritual in God's eyes. It was permissible. And and now here he is, the divine bridegroom, (laughs) present in their midst, And he's saying that his followers should have this kind of freedom and happiness while he's with them, and that their freedom to celebrate meant nothing so far as their true spirituality was concerned. Uh, The day was going to come, and Jesus makes that clear, the day's going to come when when he wouldn't be with them, and and they'd again fast, and they'd pray, and, and, and do many of the things that the Pharisees are so concerned with, But they would also do it with a completely different heart than it had been about before he came, you see. They'd be doing it to stay in intimate fellowship and communion with him and not to prove their spirituality. And that was something the Pharisees would never understand. They'd never understand this, because to them, spirituality was and always would be about the keeping of rules and regulations and traditions and, and checklists, the, the keeping of religious rituals and requirements without exception from their view. For them, if you were having a good time, well, then you were missing something spiritually. You were less spiritual for doing that. I pray, and I really mean this, I pray that none of you guys are, are, are think this way spiritually. I pray that you don't. I, I pray that all of you are enjoying the freedom that Christ has purchased and brought to your life, a freedom that doesn't set you free to sin, but, but a freedom that nonetheless that, that communicates something far different to the world than what the message of the Pharisees was then and now in our culture even today. I like how John Corson in his commentary applies this dialogue to our to our lives. He said this. A person who truly senses the presence of Jesus in his life will celebrate life as Jesus did. What about us? Have we lost sight of the fact that Jesus Christ came to bring us life and life abundantly, to let us experience real celebration? Would we be invited to a neighborhood function readily? Do our co-workers include us when they get together, or is there something about us so pharisaical that they conveniently forget to invite us? Jesus was included in all kinds of parties. The common people embraced him easily and loved to be around him constantly. Why? Because he brought a higher degree of joy to wherever he went. I pray not only that we might be able to to penetrate the parties of our society, that people would would feel free to include us in their celebrations, but that we might do what Jesus did. For they came to people as they were. He left them different than he found them. If you find the party or the people affecting you rather than you affecting them, watch out. But if, like Jesus, you can go into a place and make a difference by your joy and the unmistakable reality of God's work in your life, then go with God's blessings. Acts 8 tells us that the early church was so full of joy that they caused the entire city of Samaria to be full of joy as well. Celebrate your salvation as you infiltrate your situation, realize that Jesus can handle your humanity, that he would rather see you a friend of sinners than a self-righteous Pharisee, than go on to make a difference in your community. I like that. (laughs) I'll be honest with you, it has been pretty much my life in that regard. And yet, and I open my life to examination, if you look at my life... I'm not telling you there aren't things in my life that, 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 that I, I'm sorry I've done or I'm ashamed of doing in the past, but I can tell you that by and large, the, 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 the measure of my life has been walking in righteousness, not engaging in sinful practices and things, and yet I've walked amongst sinners. Some of my greatest years I look back on is the time I spent in the army, you know, amongst lots of people who did not know the Lord, and I was their friend. And I I value that, and I value the impact that the Lord was able to use through my friendship with them to impact them to see the life that Jesus truly brought, because they could look at my life, and very genuinely as I lived it, at the same time, they could see what Jesus had done in me, the change that made me different from what they were, and yet wasn't a pharisaical difference. (laughs) I celebrated with them when they celebrated. I rejoiced with them when they rejoiced. I cried with them when they cried. I was there standing side by side with them, never fearful that somehow that liberty and freedom that Christ has given me, I would somehow translate into sin in my life. Far be it from me. It's like the Apostle Paul says, shall we sin that grace may abound? Of course not. Of course not. But I have also understood over the years that I have God's Spirit dwelling in me to help me understand his word. I have his law written on my heart, which is his heart. It's a new heart placed in me that's beating in alignment with his. And that's made all the difference in the world so that I could walk in freedom and yet still walk righteously in the midst of it. I hope that makes sense to you guys. But I think the world needs this. I think the world needs the genuineness. And I think it needs it now. There's so much hatred right now between people. There's so much division, just not in our country, but in our world. But our country seems to be the the, the focal point of it right now. And, and what, what the Lord needs is for God's people to be standing up in the midst of that, who, 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 who yes, living our righteousness, and yet at the same time, we're still friends of the this, 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 this sinners who live in this world, not friends of the world. We're not friends of the world, right? But friends of the sinners who live in this world, because we may be the only connection that they will ever have to hearing a testimony of Jesus Christ in their lives. As I talked about a few weeks ago, we can't do that by, or last week, we can't do that by setting ourselves apart in some little facility. This is great to get together as believers. We encourage each other as believers. We grow together as believers. We take encouragement from one another as believers, and we find the things that we need for our lives personally in relationship with other believers. But we were never meant to hole up like this. We were meant to go out I almost pray that in the midst of the COVID thing that has, to some degree, upended church life as we know it, has created a different mindset in people that maybe is pushing them out into the world, almost like persecution did for the first century church. If persecution wouldn't have come, the first church, century church would have clung together and never would have gone out. But, but God allowed persecution to come in to scatter them out amongst the fallen people of this world. Maybe, just maybe, he's doing the same thing in the midst of this so that we will think differently. Not that we won't come back together again, but so that when we do, when we're back meeting as we typically did, that our mind would have been changed about the outside world. That there would be a connection for us in a sense that we would want to go and live our lives in Christ before that fallen world, that they might find Christ as well. The Pharisees never understood this kind of thinking. To them, it was all about spiritual rules and the way you, you, you conducted yourself through these rituals and practices. But to Jesus, Jesus loved life. Jesus enjoyed seeing his disciples love life, and he enjoyed being in the midst of people who he knew were dying from that disease of sin. They were dying, but through whom he could come and introduce life in their midst. Well, let's look on. Verse 36. Then he spoke a parable to them. It, now, in responding to the criticisms of Pharisees over his behavior and that of his disciples, Jesus now answers them with a parable. It's really going to be a two-part parable. I will argue it's a three-part. Most, you're probably going to settle and say it's two-part with a sub-part, okay, to one of the parts. But for but simplicity, let's just say three-part parable. And this is the first of many parables that Jesus is going to use to illustrate a point. And as such, I think it's important for us to understand what a parable is and how Jesus used them to communicate spiritual truth to people. It's been said that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, and that's absolutely true. A parable uses a common, everyday situation, something which people are familiar with and, and can to some degree relate to, and then it draws a a. a parallel to some deeper spiritual truth. And the idea behind its use is that if the audience being addressed can understand and appreciate an everyday experience being used in the parable, then they'll have a keener understanding and hopefully be able to make some leap to the more complex spiritual idea behind the parable that the parable is meant to communicate. But, and this is an important but, since we're talking about spiritual truth— and God's Word, the process of understanding a parable is a little bit more complicated than that. You see, without the Holy Spirit's intervention, a true grasp of the spiritual truth behind the parable, it's difficult at best and generally impossible to fully understand. This is exactly what Jesus said to his disciples when they asked him why he was teaching in parables as recorded in Matthew 13. But in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 13, it tells us this, Matthew 13, verse 10, and the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Forever has to him, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand."